Greetings from the Commonwealth of Quantum Society's talk show. This show has been created to bring to light the need for a centralized culture in the African-American community and to show how many of the struggles in the black community are rooted in the lack of a centralized African-based culture in the black race as it exists in Western civilization and the Western hemisphere. My name is Clarence Jones, your host today, and I'm going to use my show to make a case for using the fall holiday of Kwanzaa as a platform for the many different kinds of black people to gather around. Kwanzaa would be taken and made into a year-round system instead of a once-a-year holiday. And of course, a fair question, as usual, why have I chosen Kwanzaa? And uh, before I get into the show, I want to let, let it be known, I thought this in 1995, that wow, Kwanzaa could be, I was doing a lot of reading and a lot of black history, a lot of world history. Then I started doing business books later, but really got really had an a, a, a anchoring, a hankering for black history books and history books in general. And so I realized in like 1995 that uh, I think Kwanzaa could help black people be more unified, which would allow them to be more proactive and efficient. Now, you talk about a football player who's trying to be Lawrence Taylor and trying to have an NFL career. But I, as an athlete, I always understood you have a playbook. You have a philosophy. You have to practice together. You have to execute together. You have to have camaraderie. As a matter of fact, I went to teams where that was the opposite, and we didn't fare too well. I remember I went to the Saints, and I had a, I had a high salary, but I was not that productive. And so there was a lot of dissent and hate, you know, be over me. The problem in New Orleans is wasn't that I sucked. We sucked. We weren't a good team. And so that's, that's what a team can do. If you have a strong team, and a strong accountability tree, which the Saints did not, the New York Giants did, everyone's looking at themselves. Before they're looking around at somebody else, they're looking at themselves. And that was a problem in New Orleans, and it's why, you know, they, we weren't productive at all. We had Willie Rope, a Hall of Famer. We had uh, Joe, Joe, um, Joe Johnson, first-round draft pick, defensive man. He was good. Uh, and, of course, we had Big Wayne Martin. And so, and then we had uh, Andy McCullum was a good, very good, but we had a couple of good dudes. But by and large, we were subpar individual players. So, but you had most of the team looking at the right tackle, looking at me. That's a, a crappy team. You know, that's a team that can't do anything because no one's looking at themselves. That's a a weak accountability tree. A strong accountability tree is the New York Giants, where everyone had a sense that you better be doing your job. Don't worry about this, what the guy's doing in the locker next to you. What are you doing? We're watching you. You better be watching yourself. And even from, from Bill Parsons, the thing that was shocking about New York, New York uh, as far as teamwork, everyone knew Bill Parcells was a genius, and he was a dominant coach. He was a great coach. He, you know, he basically the blueprint and the genesis of New England definitely came from Bill Parcells and the New York Giants. If there had never been a Bill Parcells, there absolutely would not be a New England Patriots with all those championships. They ran the same offense. Uh, they had the same um, defense. And more, most importantly, they had the same locker room. Locker room is 
how the players are interacting with each other. And in New York and New England, you had a sense that you better be doing your job. Don't worry about what other people are doing. You better be doing your job. And so you, you, I could hear that in the conversations and little conflicts that you heard coming out of the locker room that was reminiscent of being a New York Giant. And once I left New York, it wasn't really like that as much. And so that's what it is. So you need a game plan. And, you know, I, I thought back then that Kwanzaa might be able, that might be something that would be very helpful to the black community. Interesting uh, sidebar for the last 10 plus years, five plus years, at least since I was in um, Virginia, so that's 2010, maybe even before that, I've been doing Kwanzaa every day with my son. And the Ngoza Soba are the seven principles of Kwanzaa that tell you how to live and how to pursue life. The first one is Ujama, which is unity. The second one is Kujagagila, which is self-determination, thinking for yourself, speaking for yourself, loving yourself. The third is Ujama, cooperative work and responsibility. We have stuff that we have to do. That's the Ngoza Soba. Uh, the fourth one is so it's cooperative work. The next one is collective economics, which is Ujama, working together. One dollar, most ethnic groups take a dollar bill, and it circulates within that ethnic group, Jews, Asians, Hispanics probably, uh, other ethnic groups, a dollar circulates within that community five to ten times. Within the black community, a dollar simply leaves. It's going to a business that's out of the black community. And so no one's really benefiting from that dollar other than people outside of the black community. That's not good. That is the opposite of Ujama Cooperative Economics. Uh, the next one is the fourth. The fifth one is Nia, finding your purpose and using, um, yeah, uh, yeah, finding, using, finding out what God put you on this earth for and figuring out how to use it to help your community uh, and your country. Your country is part of your community as well. So, but, you know, first things first, you got to take care of home before you can help other people. So that's Nia, your purpose. Saturday is Kumba, crea uh, creativity. Uh, what can you do? What can you create that can bring honor to your race and to your people and to your community? And then, of course, the final one, the seventh, is um, Imani, which is faith. That's on Sunday. And so now, for the, it's about being faithful, having faith in yourself and faith in your people that you can work things out and we can get ourselves back to where we need to be. So you have to have that faith, which is hard because some, so much of us, so many of us are not unified, do not have a strong accountability tree, and are literally working against our own interests. So faith is very difficult uh, when you, it's not an easy thing. You have to work at it. First, you have to have faith in yourself and faith in the creator. Uh, but when I text my son, what's today in Kwanzaa, he tells me today every time. He knows it's such and such. You know, if it's Monday, it's Umoja. If it's Wednesday, it's Ujama, Cooperative Work and Responsibility. That's the makings of a culture. Think about 50 million people, 20 million people, 50 people on that same game plan 
saying, this is what you should be thinking about today. You should be thinking about getting better. You should be thinking about unity. What can we do? We worry about other people's help. What can we do? So the principles of Kwanzaa, the Ingoza Soba, are something that can be lived daily. And so the question is, why did I pick Kwanzaa? Uh, Kwanzaa is African, but not specific to a particular tribe of Africa. So it is inclusive to all African peoples. Kwanzaa is a first fruits harvest celebration that does not um, infringe upon religion, nationality, geography, and ethnicity. Uh, another point there, when, I, when you look at the nation of Islam and their commerce, their economics, they, they essentially embody all of the principles of Kwanzaa in the nation of Islam. All the, all the seven principles, they literally seem like they work at it every day. Now, I'm not a Muslim. Don't want to be a Muslim. I don't even know if I'm a Christian, but I, I definitely agree with a lot of the concepts and principles. And uh, I, I'm actually a Wayne Dyer guy. So I like Wayne Dyer. I like Joseph Campbell. Uh, there are a lot of spiritual um, people out there that really can get you connected to creation. And I love that. But anyway, when we talk about the in goes of Soba and the benefits of Kwanzaa, it's all in Native Islam. All these people live their lives. They have their own economics. We're going to talk about um, them in education, uh, a lot of things we don't do that they do. And so this is, so Kwanzaa, not infringing upon religion and nationality is a very important tool because we're not trying to tell Native Islam, don't be Muslim. And, and, and we're not trying to be Muslim. So we can come together along cultural principles and historic, ancestral cultural principles. The African peoples need an ancestry-based system that all black people can rally around. This would lead to better camaraderie, uh, which would lead to more familiarity, which would lead to better continuity, then more camaraderie, which would lead to an enhanced ability to organize coordinate and orchestrate. And of course, the results of all these processes together are what is called unity. People use unity as this word. It's just a word, unity. And uh, it's unfortunate because we miss the whole point of the word. People think unity, black people think unity is I can treat you like crap Tuesday, but if you hit the lottery on Thursday, I'm supposed to let everything go and forgive you and, 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 and move on without any problem. we got to be unified. That's how black people think. But the reality of that is if you've done something to harm me, you've done something to betray me once, unless you have a legitimate reason to do it, why wouldn't you do it again? So we have a lot of people that don't want to have anything to do with each other that are African-American. And they are justified in that based on the activity, the lack of unity. The more antagonism, the more disrespect. Unity is a key ingredient that has been lacking in the black population and that has been a root, a problem and root of uh, many of the struggles and challenges have been a major impediment to its ability to deal with adversity, struggles as one force. I'm going to use this show to make a case for the need of a central culture in the black population and for the practicality of using Kwanzaa as that cultural platform. I'm going to cite history, my personal life as a pro athlete, current events, and books I've read as illustrations 
of the need for essential culture in the black population. And so definitely enjoy going over that stuff and bringing in some new points to this. Before we get into what Kwanzaa is, there are some issues I want to talk about this week that are off the script and off my template. I want to get into what I heard last week. Remember, we're going into black domination and the lack of, of African civilization and the, and the problem with the black man not building societies and maintaining societies and civilizations anymore and how that impacted his self-development, his self-confidence, working with other people uh, that you know, made him a marginal ally, even when he wants to help people, he doesn't do a good job of it. So let's talk. Uh, about what happened last week, and I think it was Saturday or Sunday, there is a respected radio host that I was listening to. And he was, the subject of the day was Colin Powell. The great general passed away of COVID, I think. He had complications of cancer and COVID, and he passed away. And so they were talking about Colin Powell. And, and oddly enough, they actually brought up Manning Marable. And he's someone whose book we've always referenced for the last couple of weeks, which was cool when I heard them do that. And so what they were talking about, the general, was, again, it was a high-end a radio host, that, my favorite radio host, and he had a high-end guest that was a professor or a PhD, someone to be respected. So he wasn't some Rudy Pooh person just running their mouth. And so now when we talk about, and I always talk about black domination, not understanding power and not putting stuff together. Manning Marable talks about it in his book, the disconnect from the different types of black um, entities, the different parts of black America are, uh, have a disconnection. The educated against the uneducated, the unions against the rural black. Okay, the, the bourgeois blacks against uh, the, the other ones, against the working class blacks. Dr. King's Southern Christian leadership and the Black Panther and the Black um, Nationalist movement, that Black Militant movement. He wasn't moving fast enough for them. And at the end of the day, Martin Luther King, Dr. King was very unpopular with Black clergy. And so Manning Marable goes in depth talking about this in his book. And if we have enough time, we're going to go over the education problem as well. Not having a central culture and not being able to control your ecosystem and you can't educate yourself. Okay, So we're back to Colin Powell, General Powell. He passed away. So the two intellectuals were talking about General Powell and, you know, basically he was a mass murderer and he took part in the right-wing uh, Bush administration and all of the stuff that they did as far as Iran, Iraq. Uh, he was the one that got us in to Iraq. And, you know, they admitted that General Powell was a nice guy, but they were not going to come off of him being a, like a war criminal. They called Colin Powell a war criminal. I was like, wow, I couldn't believe it. And so this is kind of goes into the black community and not having that continuity with different types of black people, not having that platform. What they fail to realize, and, I, and I'm not 
you know, saying he was okay for being a Republican. Um, he was clearly a good man. That's number one. And uh, I didn't agree with all of his politics, but he was good people. And what I distinctly remember, you know, and I guess uh, Colin Powell was a moderate Republican. And so I remember him in training camp in the 2000 election. And they were doing the election in training camp. I was, I think I was in, in South Carolina and I was laying in my bunk uh, between meetings. And I distinctly, I couldn't believe it. Colin Powell said, we talk about welfare, but you guys don't want to talk about corporate welfare. And it was like, wow, Colin Powell said that? Um, good gracious. And, and the odd thing about it, when he said it, you could hear people talking and, and carry on that they clearly weren't listening to him. Okay. So in general Powell, you have a man of honor. You have a man of integrity. This is what he believes. He's a small government self-help guy. You know, he, he's not into the big government liberal thing, although he, he just doesn't believe it. And so he can't, you know, go out saying what other people want him to say just to be politically correct. But in this instance, in 2000, he clearly was calling out the 1%. You're talking about these poor people and welfare, get them off welfare. They give y'all welfare. What's up with that? And so I respected him for saying that. Then when things in the economy went bad, years later, and um, I thought it was with Obama, but it wasn't with Obama because it was Mrs. Bush that was calling for him. They were calling for Colin Powell to basically run for vice president. At that point, uh, Barack Obama had a great speech in like 2002. I think the other dude, Harold Ford, they had some color with the Democrats and the Republicans really didn't seem to have anything. And they looked old. And, the, you know, with the demographics of the country changing, it wasn't a great look. So what they, instead of changing their policies to say, we're going to do this to help, you know, more Latinos or African-Americans, we're going to have some policies. We're not going to have big government, but we're going to have these policies that help you. Instead of doing that, they basically are trying to get Colin Powell to essentially be a token vice presidential candidate. Now, it was a great, you know, that was a great, his, if he was an egotistical man, to be the first black man to run for office as vice president of the United States, he was a war, a, a general, he was a respected person. It was an amazing uh, advancement. It was a, an, an amazing uh, opportunity. But I think Colin Powell, General Powell, knew that that was a token position and he did not want to be utilized in that way. So he didn't run, even though they were calling for him. Colin Powell, report for duty. Colin Powell, report for duty. It's funny. You know, they were, they, they were trying not to be the only white, <laughs> only white party, I think, uh, not doing a very good job of it. But um, interesting enough, though, Colin Powell ended up being part of the administration. So, because again, these are his beliefs. So he said he's not going to be a token, but I do believe in your type of governance. 
if you want me to help out your administration, I will. He did that. And so I've always had a lot of respect for him because of that. And when Barack Obama was running for president, guess who said you need to, you know, it got kind of personal, got kind of ugly, because it just was like a whole part of the country just weren't ready and, and used to seeing this new reality with this man, black African-American running for president of the United States. This dude was an amazing individual. He wasn't, you know, Barack Obama wasn't some, you know, you know, he wasn't some Rudy Poot guy. This was a high-end guy who, whether you agree with his politics or not, he came out of law school and, and instead of getting an $80,000 job in a condo and trophy wife, he went into the community doing community stuff. That's how he got his start. This guy was always someone trying to do something good in the community, regardless of whether you think of his politics. So anyway, when things were getting a little ugly in the campaign with, uh, with Barack Obama, it was Colin Powell that said, y'all need to cut this stuff out. And uh, when, and I'll never forget when Barack Obama won the presidency, uh, Colin Powell weeping at, at that moment that, you know, uh, here you have a Republican, a Reagan Republican, you know, just weeping at the first black man to be president of the United States. It was, it's unfortunate because it, it clearly had a backlash. But it was a it was a validation of the possibility of democracy in America. And that's what it represented. And that's why it moved Colin Powell, who believes in this democracy and its possibilities for everyone. And it was demonstrated in that instance. So now, you know, he had a backlash on that that wasn't so good. But uh, so my, my thing is, with General Powell, you're certainly not going to be somebody to agree with all of his politics and all of his decisions, but man, he was a high-end individual. Loved this country. He, he stood up. When, when the first black man was trying to run for president, they were giving him the, the raw deal. He stood up. He stood his ground. So it's interesting that these intellectuals can only put him in that narrative. He's simply a war criminal. And first of all, we know what happened with Iraq anyway. Everybody, they, well, they basically used General Powell. General Powell said we need to go in there, but a lot of the information that was given to him was faulty. They knew we wanted to go. We needed to do something. And so according to this criteria, if this is true, yeah, we should be going to war. So it's almost like the Gulf of Tonkin 50 years ago with Vietnam, 60, 70 years ago, where, you know, the thing that started a military buildup in Vietnam was the Gulf of Tonkin incident where a U.S. warship was supposedly attacked. And so now decades later, you know, years later, it kind of, they say it didn't happen at all, but I don't know about that. But it was, it was something used to get us into the war that was clearly and factually not 100% um, correct and true. So. Iraq was similar to that, and that the head of that was Colin Powell. I remember that. But that stuff, that information that was given to was not, you know, it was faulty. So, you know, for me to just categorically call him a war criminal is, that to me is black zombie nation. We have to understand how we can come together. How can we work with each other, even though we don't agree on particular issues? We are still trying to get to the advancement 
of black people. Colin Powell came to the United States as a Caribbean and in the inner city. He, he, he didn't go to, you know, he wasn't an upper echelon guy. He came up the hard way. I think he might have gone to city college. So um, probably need to look that up. But I, I know this. He came up the hard way. He did not. He was not given anything. So he understands struggle. He understands discrimination, probably. And so there's something that we needed to do as a community uh, to have that, that continuity, which we don't have. And so I, I absolutely think that Kwanzaa can do that. Um, they made good points about Colin Powell, but here's where they went, out, went on uh, further. They, then they started, I think Colin Powell was a Caribbean and was an immigrant. So they started getting into talking about other immigrants, uh, probably Caribbeans and Jamaicans. And now we've talked about in our other shows what advantage immigrants have over indigenous populations of, of Americans, Latino, African-Americans, even whites. They come from particular parts of their, their nations. Once they get here, they tend to congregate around each other. They tend to have their own culture. They start working with each other economically. And so it actually, they are more condensed and their power more focused. So they are able to be more efficient than the indigenous populations of poor people here. Absolutely. And that's Jamaicans, Indians, Chinese, Koreans, everything. So what the two radio hosts were saying, they were saying that the country tends to roll out the red carpet for these new immigrants and that, you know, basically making things easy for them as opposed to, you know, African-Americans. And of course, first of all, people don't know about Caribbeans. It's all about game plans and playbooks. Caribbeans have their own economic system that no one knows about. Apparently, when a, when a Caribbean gets a house, so if it's two brothers and sisters, uh, and all of them are in the state, and one doesn't have a house, they're supposed to start saving together so that that other one gets a house. I never knew that about them. There's some type of fun that's consistent with Caribbeans uh, uh, interesting. They've never told us about it. <laughs> we eat their food, listen to their music, dance their dances. They never told us about this. That's a system that Caribbeans have that gives them an advantage. So these radio hosts talking about, you know, the people rolling out the red carpet for the newly arriving immigrants. First of all, if they're high educated um, immigrants and they are highly motivated, Absolutely, they're, they're high probability winning people. So, yeah, they're definitely people that are going to be preferred. Um, but it's going into black zombie nation because the intellectuals are again disconnecting, creating that disconnect between the different types of black people. Now it's the educated Negro. No, it's the educated Negroes that just got here. They're the problem. That's what they were saying. And um, that narrative, Manning Marable refers to in his book, which is interesting too, because they brought up Manning Marable. And, um, uh, and then um, we also had 
Um, we also had Manning Marable talking about uh, the education system and uh, taking care of that or not taking care of that. So all these are things that um, are examples to me of black zombie nation, of a, of a group of people that don't have that connection, don't have that, that um, unity. And even in this instance with educated, highly intelligent black intellectuals are still trying to find some black folks to point out. It's the, it's the educated black. That's the problem. And he said that. The dude is that they're, they're the educated blacks as if all, all the, the working class blacks are the salt of the earth. They're the real black people. And uh, they, 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 we need to work together with them. Forget about those people. It's pretty stupid uh, if you think about that. And here's why. First of all, I'm going to give you five names or maybe six. George Washington, again, to this guy's point, it's the educated black people, the bourgeois black people. They, 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 we, we, we can just forget about them. They don't work with us anyway. George Washington, Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., Ho Chi Minh, Fidel Castro, uh, Che Guevara. Who are all those people? They're all obviously different types of people, radically different. They have one thing in common. They're revolutionaries, all of them. All of those guys are revolutionaries. And I think all of them, is to how, back to the point of black domination and black people not understanding power, not, how, not understanding how to be unified, all those people were bourgeois people. All those people grew up wealthy for the most part. Uh, I think George Washington was a landowner, might have been a lawyer, then he went to law school. Gandhi, lawyer. Ho Chi Minh, trained in France, somehow, went to school in France. Got to have money to do that. Fidel Castro, lawyer. Um, che Guevara, doctor. He's a physician. He had, he had servants. He graduated and hit the countryside on his motorcycle looking at the poverty, and that's what radicalized him. Malcolm X, I didn't mention him before. His father was a Garveyite. He was a preacher. Preachers were the professional athletes of their time. They assassinated his father. Then he grew up poor. But he had a middle-class background as a child, period. So when, when the black zombie nation looks to alienate or point out other blacks that they're the problem, yeah, but the, the bourgeois is usually where the leadership comes from. The upper edge of the educated black of any revolution usually comes, you know, the leadership usually comes from them. So when you're talking about alienated them, they're not really down, they're not really one of us, you are, excuse me, you are truly cutting off your face, cutting off your nose to spike your face. It's pretty stupid. And um, those guys would like it. Then we had Ricky Smiley. Um, Moving away from that, but still into black zombie nation. Ricky Smiley was on today or yesterday. He's a radio host at out of Atlanta who's very funny, uh, who I like. We're talking about black kids. How in the school systems, the black kids of black people are very disrespectful. And our traditional ways are where, you know, whereas we had each one teach one, it takes a village, you know, uh, um, when in the 
50s and 60s and 70s, when you got out of line, you know, your neighbor might whoop your behind before you get home to your mama. In today's world, you better not touch people's kids. And in, in many instances, when the kids are doing wrong, when the kids are being obnoxious, they're being disrespectful, and then they, get, they chastise the kid, here comes the mom wanting to get up in your face as the teacher or the people like that. And so they were talking about that on the Ricky Smiley show. That's absolutely what I've been talking about as far as Black Zombie Nation, as far as not being one. We used to have a system. We used to have a system that we, you know, took care of our own. Now, you can't talk to the kids. They, and they said, the, let's see, the principals are afraid of the, um, the politicians. The teachers are afraid of the principals. And the kids aren't afraid of anybody in the school system. So that's one of the problems that's going on. But that's not having a unified system on how to treat one another, how to work with one another. Culture is the thing that does that. And um, we have to we have to get on that. I believe Co- I believe Kwanzaa can do that. And so now, what is culture? Since I've just gone on a rant about culture and the importance of, co- importance of culture, Black Zombie Nation, and what have you, what is culture? Culture gives you a sense of uh, dedicated... Um, uh, since I have dedicated... Oh, okay. Culture gives you a sense of oneness. Culture gives you a playbook for an ethnic group or nation or company or sports team. It puts everyone on the same page. Culture is a coming together of beliefs, values, and customs, education, entrepreneurship, acquiring symbols of status. All this is part, partly done by your culture. Culture can put you on that road. Uh, culture must be learned. If it's not learned, if it is not learned, it is not culture. Culture. What else does culture do? Culture is a connecting point, connection point of a race and its ancestral rituals and success procedures. So it connects. It connects an ethnic group, and we've talked about this before. There may be a safe way to cook chicken that may be 300 years old because it's been done for 300 years. And a more efficient way to cook chicken, the culture passes that down. Success. And so, and it passes down uh, success principles, child rearing, education, stewardship, and survival. Culture uh, is, it uses symbolic um, things and metaphors of its humanity that are representative of its ancestors. Culture is a center point of a group of its rituals. We said that before. Culture is economic strategic planning for a race. There we go. And we're going to talk about that today as far as education. Strategic planning is looking at the future and figuring out how to make what you want in the future happen which means everything you do now is getting you ready for that future. That's strategic planning for a race. Culture does that for an ethnic group. Uh, it helps in the acquisition of businesses. It's used to help the process 
help in real estate, educating. Culture is transporting of history of a race and its identities, uh, who we are. We're the chosen people. Uh, there are certain people that call the untouchable. That's obviously a negative cultural thing in India. You know, you don't want to be an untouchable. So uh, culture does that. Now, see, that's where Kwanzaa comes in. We have to, that's Kujagagila, self-determination. Do we allow other people to call us the untouchables? No, we are the first people. We're one of the first cultural peoples that be, to be on this planet. We're one of the first civilizations to be on this planet. We are factually the first people. We may not be the very first. That's up to a debate. Experts have to say, but we are one of the first peoples, one of the first civilizations on this earth. And the things that we've done have still not been duplicated in many instances. Culture is an economic, social, physical, physiological, spiritual, geographical uh, rallying point for an ethnic group, a disconnection from all these elements of, oh, disconnecting from all these elements of civilizations leaves an ethnic group virtually defenseless. There's nothing they can do. And we talked about that when my boys went to, <laughs> it was in the 80s, and one of my punk ass boys was bothering this Hispanic dude, these Central Americans. So we were used to Puerto Ricans, and the Central Americans were at some fair, and he was showing off in front of the girls <laughs> and bothering the dude that wasn't bothering him. Why, I don't know. All I know is the dude, <laughs> I wasn't there. If I was there, I would have beat my friend up. Uh, he yelled something in Spanish, and they're all surrounded <laughs> by the Central Americans. And they were all getting ready to get their asses kicked, but I guess they were good guys. And they didn't want any trouble. They said fight one on one. And my punk ass friend didn't want to fight one on one, and he hit him in the back. So a punk, a punk, punk move. But that's that's a, you know that's a rallying point. Like I said, when you have no connecting point, you have no unity. You're virtually defenseless. When you do, you have a playbook. You have a game plan. You have a way of communicating uh, to your other people. In many instances, when other people can't even understand what you're saying, because that's what happened with my friends. They said something in Spanish, and they were surrounded. They were bothering the guy. So it wasn't a conflict. He was bothering someone that was not bothering him. So this is what happened. Culture is a template for a race that without it, it cannot exist as a cooperative entity. So only culture can give you serviceable dynamic between genders. Only culture can, can organize your youth around economics, uh, organize you around economics. Only culture can properly dispute life-saving societal developing knowledge. Only culture can create symmetry between the classes with the race. Again, as we have on the video, on, on the radio last week, you got the black intellectuals calling out the well-to-do blacks. They're the problem. And uh, forget them anyway. We don't need them. The real black people are the working class, salt of the earth black people. Yeah, right. First of all, those people are very antagonistic. Poor black people, working class black people, they pick up early how you talk. Me being a Theo Huxtable type of dude, or the working class, salt of the earth black people, pick that up early. Oh, you want them bourgeois Negroes. You know, you're not one of us. They'll say that in a second. And they're hostile, antagonistic of each other. So that's funny that you have the black, which has been a problem. You have the black intellectual, intellectualizing 
over everything. You talking this way, our people are not acting like this in the streets. <clears throat> They're acting obnoxious, disrespectful, and antagonistic, and in certain instances, purposely antagonizing each other. Um, if I'm ever able to do this, I'd like to get observers to observe black males and black people uh, really police, but they would be in plain clothes and just observe how they, how we are with each other. See, no one wants to be a punk, so everyone's very aggressive, you know, like cut you off, um, just completely antagonistic with other blacks that they wouldn't do against whites. Almost like it's some, it's some thug stuff, it's some gang stuff, it's some tribal stuff, but we're not in any particular tribe. It's just when you see that black skin, you know, you know, you're not trying to back down in any way. You see that in the black community. And, and that's typically your working class, poor black people that have that mentality. We got these brothers here talking about salt of the earth black people as if they're the Southern Christian leadership black people from the 50s and 60s. They're not. So that's not, no, nah, it's not all of them, but it, it's, it goes to the disconnect. It goes to the lack of accountability in the black community and continuity where we're looking at other people and never looking at ourselves. Uh, again, it can create good symmetry between genders. We said that. Only culture can teach how to love each other as black people. Only culture can teach why education is important and only culture can help teach you to honor old people. Culture can love a specific people. And so it's a very important thing when we talk about our culture. And so uh, into black civilization and where does this come from? The black author, Chancel Williams, wrote in his book, the, uh, the Destruction of Black Civilization, the West African Population of Blacks Who Occupied the Area Were In Fact Refugees of East Africa, Where They Built Their Own Singular Societies and Civilizations With an Unknown Centralized Language uh, Because Natural Disaster and Immigration from Arab Populations from Asia Minor they began migrating across the continent to the western portion of the continent. As this happened, they began uh, splitting up and going into different parts of West Africa, forming their own uh, tribes and their own tribal languages and cultures, with one African country having up to 100 tribes. Having no central state, European incursion was unchecked, and literally, instead of unifying to deal with the common threat, posed by the region, posed to the region. On the contrary, the slave trade caused infratricidal wars to ensue between tribal chiefs. The fragmentation in the black race has created a factual reality that the black man has not needed to build uh, and maintain his own societies and civilizations for about 5,000 years. And that's a, this is a consequence of that. And so... Um, and some of the consequences he does not value knowledge since the black man is not getting himself ready to run a society and run a civilization he does not value knowledge he does not value information he pursues mating rights instead of 
instead of attempting to dominate the ecosystem in which he resides. Uh, it would give him all the, the mating, uh, which would give him all the mating he wants if he, had, if he dominated his ecosystem. He values physical prowess instead of societal dominance, properties, wealth, and creation, and wealth creation. Uh, he questions all black authority and is naturally subservient to regular authority. He does not question those things. The consequences of the black man not needing to build his, and maintain his own civilizations and societies has made him remedial in mil military science, which all military science is, is strategic planning. What are we going to do to protect ourselves? What are we going to do to educate ourselves in the future? And we got to start doing that now. We have to plan now and put together systems and projects now to get us down the road. That's strategic planning. That's military science. The black man, since he hasn't had to win, uh, run his own society, is remedial in this area. Power creation, acquisition, and not even understanding how they even work, making him a vulnerable to predatory ethnic groups, which is all, 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 um, all, uh, what, what do you call it? Well, I forgot it. Um, when they move the people out and uh, make them gentrification, uh, making them vulnerable to a gentrification and an, a, a marginal ally at best. If you have black men that think Colin, you know, you don't have, I'm not saying agree with Colin Powell, but you want to call him out, don't want to call other people out, want to disregard wealthy blacks or smart blacks and want to think the real blacks are the working class blacks who are hostile and antagonistic of each other anyway. They don't want to have anything to do with you or me in many instances. One thing is for certain, they definitely know we're not like them. <laughs> and they'll tell you, you're not one of us. <laughs> you're not Negro enough. The so-called black community is quick to antagonize, alienate, and disrespect one another with an emphasis on not being disrespected. The ecosystem of, of hostile discontinuity manifests itself into what I call black zombie nation. Black zombie nation is the black community's inability to cooperatively and collectively execute on its own behalf to take power, to create power, to do all the things that would help it survive. That makes it black zombie nation. And so I want to, we're moving along. I want to get into Manning Marable's book, How Capitalism Underdeveloped Black America. And we're getting into black zombie nation, how we're not together how we're too factionalized, where there's too much of a disconnect with different types of black people in the black community, making cooperative collective execution difficult. So let's look at um, Manning Marable's section in the book that talks about the destruction of black education. And remember, culture helps in educating. Culture teaches you to love yourself. It teaches you to love other people like you. It teaches you to work with others. It teaches you to, to get a great education because it's going to give you a high salary. Culture can be a, a major part of educating a people, children, young and old. So let's get into this on um, page 225. And uh, Dr. Marable talks about this. And it's interesting. Someone gave me a book talking about what I'm going to read years ago. But I'm going to read it now. Dr. Manning is talking about black colleges in southern states. It, uh, the, du uh, the dual system of segregated higher education would exist for over 60 years. 
would history repeat itself? That's the question uh, Manning Marable wanted to uh, ask. It is from this perspective of history that North Carolina, the North Carolina agreement must be judged. He's talking about some agreement relative to education in the state. The state acquired the reputation as the most liberal throughout the South in its policies on black public education. So they are known as people that help black people go to college and get educated. The first black colleges in North Carolina, Barbara Scotia in Concord, Shaw University in St. Augustine, Augustine in Raleigh, and Johnson C. Smith in Charlotte were started immediately after the Civil War. The number of schools expanded rapidly with the emergence of Jim Crow laws. Let's repeat. The numbers of schools expanded rapidly with the emergence of Jim Crow laws. So Jim Crow laws, laws that were certainly not good for black people, caused the expansion of the numbers of schools, a rapid expansion of schools. Interesting. Guess they try to help us out. Today, there are more black colleges in North Carolina with a substantial state support than any other state. Nevertheless, Southern liberals always justify the necessity for a state-supported black higher education as a defense of white supremacy. Ooh. In 1903, uh, Gustavus R. Glenn, former Georgia uh, public school superintendent and administrator of the Peabody Fund, informed a joint session of the North Carolina legislature that the colored man will only be a danger. Now, this is the point where he's, he's, the war is over. You have this ex-slave population that you don't want to be a threat to you. What do you do? The colored man will only be a danger to us when we leave him to be educated by outside philanthropists. That's Northerners. And um, in, in teaching them how to think. Um, you need not be afraid of the Negro boy. It will take him a thousand years to get where your boy is. Wow. So you have a man post-Civil War saying, we want to underdevelop these people. We don't want these people competing with us, which is similar to South Africa. We don't want to educate them. And uh, actually, someone gave me a book, someone from my school, actually from University of Maryland, D. Lyman, good guy, that talked about this 20 years ago, in 2000. And it was basically... They essentially did not, they wanted to get control of educating the blacks before other people did because they felt other people would create blacks that thought and blacks that thought would create more Malcolm X's and Dr. King's. And so literally, that's why we have all these Southern, we have a lot of black uh, colleges, HBCUs in the South and particularly North Carolina. That was a game plan. Now, do I think we should shut down those black schools? No. I don't. But should we understand the importance of educating ourselves? The Nation of Islam educates itself. The Nation of Islam has its own schools. I don't know if it has its own college. Well, there's Mega Evans College. I think there's Malcolm X College um, in Chicago. Mega Evans College in Brooklyn, Malcolm X in Chicago. Bottom line is the Nation of Islam has its own school system. And so they educate themselves. That is Kujagagila, self-determination. Speak for yourself. Think for yourself. The racist tradition, uh, finishing the paragraph, the racist tradition was preserved into the 1950s when the North Carolina state senator, Sam Irving, drafted a Southern manifesto asserting the intention to use legal, uh, every legal tactic to halt public school desegregation. 
caught in a, an assembly of hopeless dilemma, black educators opted for what could be termed the lesser of two evils. An acceleration of the desegregation process would, in their view, simply transform traditionally black colleges into minority white institutions. The white, um, uh, the North, the North Carolina Agreement and others like it promised to halt the growing numbers of white uh, facility administrators and the students of black uh, campuses were providing millions of dollars for solely, sorely needed physical plant expansion and research. Like Booker T. Washington, these college administrators are, are politically accommodationists and insist that the national mood was has become profoundly conservative on racial matters. See, all of this is when we had our own schools is actually not good. That was part of a racial um, tent. When we were desegregating, desegregating, they were going to turn those black schools into white schools. So now you don't have an environment that tells blacks, again, back to my father. My father went to Kentucky State. Uh, he went there in 1959 where he met my mother. When he came out of Kentucky State in 1963, when he went to New York, he immediately assumed a leadership position or leadership role amongst his peers because of the HBCU. He literally he told me this. He did not know that he was not supposed to be a leader. He did not know that he was not supposed to be in, you know, a head, a big dog. He's an alpha male, great athlete, always the captain of the team, a man's man type of guy. And so absolutely would expect him to do that. But he's saying it was the HBCU at Kentucky State that taught him that, 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 that oneness, that home, that sense of home and love, we, you're important to us. Apparently, Kentucky State conveyed that to him. And so when you talk about not controlling our resources and not having continuity, you know, either we were having white people give us all kind of black institutions that didn't want to make Malcolm X or desegregation, now all those white institutes, all those black institutions now become white institutions, and so now we have no sense of home. And so, but go look at the nation of Islam. They educate themselves because they have collective wealth. They pool their money, and they educate. Now they don't have large numbers of colleges and schools, but they have little. Uh, they have elementary schools. So the blueprint of how we should do, be doing is right there in the nation of Islam. So uh, anyway. Wanted to talk about that this week. I had a great time uh, bringing up my issues. I hope I made my point this week. Uh, my goal was to make a case for the need of a central culture in the African-American community, uh, how many of the problems in the black community are due to the lack of unity and continuity and factionalism. And that's been a consequence that's uh, been going on for a long time. And I believe that Kwanzaa, utilized as a year-round system, could be a major platform to help that. So thank you for this week. Uh, thank you for listening to the show this week. I, I, I bid you farewell. I hope you have a great week. Thanks again. <laughs>